So this evening is the uh, questions and answers opportunity as you've written, many of you have written questions to ask me. And Ajahn Asoka will read the questions and I'll give you all the answers. So the first question is, uh, someone's been using the sound of silence as an object of uh, contemplation and says that after five, six days it vanishes, takes a long time to come back and they find it difficult to use the breath in the meantime. What to do? Well, the sound of silence is kind of, it's a vibration, it's not really a sound. If you notice behind everything, even the, behind the sound of the air conditioning or evening noises made by animals or whatever, there's a kind of subtle pitched vibration kind of resonating subtle sound and and again I'm saying it's not really a sound because it it has no beginning or ending where sounds that we hear with the ear are have you know they begin and end they're conditioned phenomena so I use this as I detected it years ago in my early years as a as a monk and wondering what it was because uh, you, you had this the teachings where everything is impermanent so you know that everything is impermanent so this this vibration is impermanent but I kept hearing it kept noticing it especially when I uh, very silent and still. When I'm thinking a lot, then you, uh, you forget all about it. So the, the sound of silence is here continuously. It doesn't, it, it's not a, a, an ear sound. And then it's a kind of conundrum too, because sound and silence are opposed to each other. But if you begin to notice it, it's, and sustain attention on it, it's very peaceful because it is a con- continuous continuum, peaceful vibration. And then if, if it was a sankara, it would be begin and end. My attention to it would begin and end. You know, sometimes I, Notice that sometimes I'd forget all about it, and then I'd remember it, then I'd try to find it through memory. But it's, it's not something that, you know, it's, it's behind all sounds, whether they're noisy sounds or pleasant sounds. Behind the, I used to give retreats in Chiang Mai, at Pongyang, where was in a, where the uh, Dharma Hall, the meditation hall, was right on a stream and a, and a waterfall behind it. 
quite a high waterfall. So you get this loud sound of falling water and stream flowing, very continuous natural sounds. And then I'd always notice the sound of silence. In uh, Sanskrit, it's called the nada, which means sound. Nada yoga is a kind of practice. Form of attention and resting in the, the stream of silence. So I used to, when I was a graduate student years ago, before becoming a monk, in Berkeley, in the University of California, we had, there were these peace marches. I, I belonged to two peace organizations. I was a protester for peace. And, um, this was back in 1962, 1963. It's ancient history for most of you. And this was, uh, you know, I, wanted peace more than anything. So they had this Atomic Energy Commission office in Berkeley. So we used to go and carry signs and protest, you know, and marching in front of the Atomic Energy Commission with peace signs and demanding peace. There was always this fear of a third world war. And uh, we, we, felt the Atomic Energy Commission was uh, involved in these kind of possibilities. And I remember on the peace marches, carrying a sign, protesting sign, demanding peace. And then I realized I didn't know what peace was. I, I looked at my own mind and it wasn't peaceful. I know that the two organizations, peace organizations that I was a member of, nobody in it was peaceful. And yet we were demanding peace. And then I thought, what is peace? This world, this sangsara of conditions, of individuals, of views and opinions. This is all unpeaceful. Just the conflicts within my own mind were, you know, with endless doubts and worries and resentments so forth would arise. There was no peace. How do you, what is peace? What is the reality of peace? What do we mean by the word? So this uh, was one reason why I became a monk, because I thought, you know, I'm, I, I want to find out what peace is for myself, not just expect the United States government to make me peaceful, which will never happen. So, so when those of you that notice this, use it. You know, it's a, it's a, a kind of rest, a resting attitude. When you're trying to get it, you, the problem with meditation is we imagine and we remember it sound of silence, or the nada sound. And then we want to get something called the, this, the sound of silence. We are looking for something. And that is the very obstacle, which means you'll never be aware of it. Because you're operating from a precondition, from an idea of it that you're looking for, rather than just trusting an awareness 
resting and just listening. The sense of, as I would have advised before, the sense of open, uh, relaxed listening. So the, per- the person that wrote the question has used this, but sometimes we forget it, or we, you know, and we get carried away with our views, opinions, our feelings, our thoughts. But, uh, you know, it's always present. It's just a matter of relaxing and opening rather than trying to get something that y- you remember. Well, the next question is regarding the four and six elements, earth, water, fire and air, and then space and consciousness. And the question is, whether the first four are sankharas, does that mean the last two are not? Well, it's it's the kind of Dhamma teaching of the Buddha using these words, earth, fire, water, and air, or the solid element, because, you know, they all formed conditions. All things that arise and cease have qualities. You know, so they're, they're solid or liquid. Their thoughts, like air or wind, they have forms, they have color. Fire is the, is the, you know, the element of fire in the body, the heating element. The, the solid, we used to, in monastic meditations, reflect on the solid elements as like the skeleton and that which has, has this kind of solidity, earth-like quality. The liquid elements of blood, the lymph, that flows through the body, the air, the wind that flows through the body, the breath, the fire. And then another good way to think of your body, because this is true, is a, it's a food body. These, all these bodies in this room are food. They're made out of food. You have to eat every day. Uh, keep, feeding it with food because the bodies that you identify with are food. You know, because even they could be eaten by others. So, see, looking at your body as food is, I found, very interesting way of looking at it because it kind of reflects one's own vanity of identity with it as me, as, you know, what, what I look like. The vanity of of having a body, a male or a female, and identifying so strongly with it, like on passports or identification cards. What do they? You know, they use your. They photograph your face. 
So our faces are very much what we identify with when we look in the mirror. You know, we see this is my face. And we, we look at each other, we know each other by the face usually. By the expression, the face is all food, earth, fire, water and air. And then space and consciousness, these are immeasurables, like earth, fire, water and air are measurable. Form, color, size, quality, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, big, small. Macrocosmic, microcosmic, you know, so the, all the language that, that we have is about, you know, the descriptions of the differences of the sankharas. <clears throat> sankharas you know, when we think of sankharas, the body that, that, that we have, the, the mental states that we, the thoughts are sankharas, they come and go. The emotions, uh, that change, come and go according to conditions. What we see, the organs of the eye, the eyes are impermanent, the, Objects of the eyes that we see, objects that we look at, are impermanent. The consciousness that arises through contact with the eye, with the with its object, is impermanent. And you go through the senses, the ear, the organ of the ear, the sound is impermanent. The consciousness that arises through uh, noticing, attaching to sound is impermanent. This applies to smell, taste, touch. All conditions are impermanent. So that's the four datus, and datu is the Pali word for, that we translated elements. So they, these are, you know, they're meant to be helpful guidelines for reflection. You know, they're not kind of absolute descriptions uh, that have to be defended. They're, they're more or less uh, pointing at, you know, when we talk about earth, fire, water, and air, we're not just imagining or theorizing intellectually about it, but we apply it to, to the bodies, to the experience that we have. Consciousness in this form. Consciousness that we experience through senses, sensory consciousness. Is all impermanent. Space then. There's space and consciousness. Space has no form. It is immeasurable, but it's perceivable. So the ability to, like we're just looking at space, you know, just as I'm sitting here, looking at the space in the room, I, I have to remove my interest in the forms, the people in the room, but I can certainly perceive, visually perceive space. So it's impermanent.
the perception of space that we can see through the eye. But consciousness, you can't perceive. It's perception, it's what perceives. So trying to perceive consciousness, which is an immeasurable here and now, you know, as I've said many times, you know you're conscious. So it's, it's a fact, it's the one certainty, the fact that you have at this moment, that you're conscious, you know this, without trying to perceive it or describe it or find it as an object. You can't find consciousness as an object. It's like trying to see your own eyes. You know, your eyes see, but, you know, I can't see my own eyes. You can see my eyes, but I can't at this moment. I can't make one eye see the other or turn them in on themselves to look and, and notice the, the eye. But, but the eyes can observe the objects of sight. The consciousness that arises is that kind of consciousness is impermanent. So you can't find yourself. In other words, you'll never find yourself as an object. Take my word for it, after 53 years of investigating, you know, who am I? What am I? You know, where's, what does myself mean when I talk about myself? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? What is the meaning of my life? What is the purpose of my life? All these kind of questions arise in most of us. What is the meaning of it? What, is, what am I really? You know, am I just a physical, you know, is, is all, we're just born into this world to procreate the species, survive and die? Is that, is that all that it amounts to? In a kind of negative state, you know, state of mind, and kind of depressing thought that this the kind of realm that we're experiencing as human beings. What is the meaning of it? What is the purpose? Is it just to procreate the species and survive till we die? And then are we just rot in the, in the ground? Do I rot when I die? You know, if I'm this physical body, the body decays or they cremate it. So these are, these are kind of inquiring into the way things are. Can you really find yourself as an object? Can you be conscious? Can you find consciousness through seeing? or thinking, or smelling, or tasting, or touching, feeling. You can find objects through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking. 
but can you actually find yourself what you think you are? We create images of ourselves, you know, identity with, with a physical appearance, with a gender, with a nationality, with a class identity, cultural identity, racial identity, whether we're rich or poor, we identify ourselves as successes or failures. But what is the, what is the self? What am I really in terms of reality, not in terms of what I think or what I've been told? <clears throat> so this is like investigation, which Buddha Dhamma is all about investigation. It's to, to find out for yourself. It's not a, a belief system. And that's what so many of us, the Westerners, why we became interested in Buddhism, because we don't have such a practical, useful way of investigating our own existence in Western society, Western culture. So then, getting back to consciousness, you end up with, that's what I am really, it's just this consciousness. That's not a, attached to an object. It's, it's not that I'm an object. The body's not me. It's a force in nature, condition in nature that comes, that is born and gets old and dies. But the constant reality that never changes throughout the lifespan of our physical body is consciousness. Like when the, when you were born, consciousness of a newly born infant is the same it's never changed to what you are experiencing right now. Except the newborn maybe doesn't, hasn't acquired the thinking ability or it doesn't identify with the body. But the consciousness of a newborn infant doesn't change. The body changes, it grows up, gets old, dies, the, the body, but the consciousness doesn't grow up, get old, and die. So that's the constant, ultimate reality that's here and now to be experienced. It's budgetang wetidapo he to be experienced, to be known directly. You know, it's not a belief system. We're not asking you to, to believe what I'm saying, it's up to you to find out. So notice that space gives perspective on conditions, just like, you know, the space is, is here and now, and it has no quality other than spaciousness. It's not beautiful or ugly or good or bad, true or false. But it is here and now, as we 
perceive it as we uh, visual see through seeing. I I used to practice in in Watmapo years ago before I ever went to live in the UK. Looking at the space in the meditation hall in the sala, I began to see, you know, as I became accustomed to being a monk in a Thai Sangha, I started making two important, you know, the names of the monks. I like this monk, I don't particularly like that monk. And, and so I started giving per, my perceptions of my personal reaction to to the forms of the bhikkhus that I was sitting with. I like this one, I don't like, this is a good monk, that's not such a good one. This is the discriminating critical mind. So I started just looking at the space between monks, which stopped my critical mind. Because it's visual, very clear, I could see, I can see right down this aisle, space, space above you, space around you. And if I meditate on space, it's quite peaceful because peace, space is spacious. What you get at the end of a meditation on space is a sense of spaciousness, of immeasurableness, rather than of like or dislike or whether I approve or disapprove, or the critical mind doesn't know what to do with space, it can't criticize it, but it knows it, there's a knowing, it's like this. Same with consciousness, it doesn't, it's not a critical, it's not critical. It, you know, it's not, we have to think to criticize. So in uh, the dependent origination teaching of the Buddha, Paticca Samuppada, this was one of the uh, teachings, very profound, useful meditations that we have in this tradition, to kind of investigate reality. And when you begin to see that it begins with avicca bhajaya sankar, which means ignorance, not knowing dhamma, not having investigated the four noble truths, the three aspects of each truth, the, the twelve insights, then we always come from the self-view. Avicca is the I am this person, this body. So every time I start thinking and creating, you know, start attaching to my personal feelings, my memories, my views and opinions, the sense of my separateness, my position, social position, my, my appearance, my age, my gender, that's a vicha or ignorance of the Dhamma, which affects Sankara. So sankaras that we see, that we experience through avicca, through ignorance, affect consciousness. Consciousness is whole. 
but it divides into nama rupa or name and form and then it gets more complicated into the six senses salayatana which is you know experience of uh vedana pasa vedana the contact of the senses so that it takes you to grief sorrow despair and anguish so this avicca ignorance of the dhamma not knowing dhamma not having realized reality then the only experience we can expect is some form of suffering because as human beings as individuals we have to you have, we have very pain you know sensitivity is about pleasure and pain pleasant feeling unpleasant feeling what we see hear smell taste touch all have their pleasant and unpleasant aspects we have to grow up get old get sick die we before we die we have to experience the loss of loved ones the death of our parents the death of our teachers death of loved ones a separation from the love <clears throat> all this is part of a human history a human lifetime is spent in these changing conditions that we identify with as this separate uh human form this separate person which is avicca ignorance of dhamma ignorance of your true nature so the result is always what they call, say soka parite vitoka which means grief sorrow despair anguish death then the other side, then the neurotic side of paticca samuppada is where there's vicha or knowledge insight enlightenment which is the end of suffering So this is, you know, this is the invitation to to find out for ourselves. So notice the space and consciousness immeasurables, they give perspective. When you're aware of your thinking, like you're aware thinking is like this. It, you know, you're coming, it's, it's intuitive awareness. It's not just thinking about thinking or judging thinking or getting attached to what you're thinking, but observing because you know thinking. So what is aware of thinking isn't a thought. It's conscious mindfulness, awareness aware of of the of a thought and that's why i encourage this intentional thinking like i would think uh just the words i am which is a before i become ajahn sameto just um, just these two words pronoun and a verb announcing present that's fair enough 
there's a sense of being here and now that we all experience. We're consciously aware we're here. And even in English words, I am is, is it isn't Ajahn Sumedho yet. And then I think, I am Ajahn Sumedho, then I become Ajahn Sumedho. But if there's just, you know, the, behind the word, consciousness give pers- gives perspective on the impermanence of language, of a word. It comes and goes very quickly. It doesn't linger. Words go by very fast. But we usually don't notice the space, the gaps between the words. We're always going, I imagine tomato. And, and so it's, you know, grammatically that is fair enough. And on a conventional level, that's how we operate in conventional terms. But in ultimate reality, you know, awareness, mindfulness, consciousness, isn't Ajahn Sumato. Isn't personal. So we all identify with, you know, each one with your name, with one's own name, separate name, so we all have different names. The presence is, is, you know, obvious. We're all sit here, sitting here in this room. And then we, we assume that I, you know, the, like speaking for myself, that I am Ajahn Sumedho under all conditions. You know, so it's on a conventional, there's a difference between conventional reality and ultimate reality. Conventions are just ways of communicating, but they're all impermanent and not self. But we take the conventional realities very personally. You know, we, we grasp the conventions and overlook ultimate reality goes completely unnoticed in some people's lives. They never, ever recognize ultimate reality. They're so caught up in the conventions of their physical form and their conditioning. Because consciousness is immeasurable, it has no, you know, it's invisible. You can't see it. You can't perceive it. But you are that. That's a fact you can't deny. The next question is how to differentiate between intuitive awareness on one hand and instinct or gut feeling on the other. Intuitive awareness and instinct, gut feeling. Well, they're just different expressions. Like when we talk about intuition, like the English word intuition isn't a rational kind of knowing. 
like rationally, you know, it's a thinking process. It's discrimination. You know, so we, you know, we're educated to think and rationalize. We, we adore reason, make things reasonable, sensible, logical. These are the developments of, of the thinking mind, reason and logic. But reason and logic don't have any guts. They have no real feeling. Intellectual people who spend their time up in their heads usually lack much intuitive abilities because the, the critical mind takes over and it can, and you can rationalize anything. You can justify anything, you know, crime or genocide or, you know, murder and, you know, the way that that the rational mind can can justify and adapt to any situation. So that's pointing to rationality, which is a, a gift we have, but it's not ultimately true or real. It's not ultimate truth. It's a function. It's nama rupa. It's it's divisive. The thinking mind is a, is, you know, about good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. But intuitive awareness is more on the heart level. It's, it's the feeling level. You, you know, you can, you get a feeling. You, it's, it's not, Rational. Some people that are very intuitive sometimes are dismissed because they, they pick up kind of moods and atmospheres of situations or different people. You know, that they, they can't prove logically or rationally. But intuitive awareness is what we're, you know, in meditation is what we're not trying to rationalize Buddha Dhamma and, and discuss it in terms of logic, reason and logic anymore. But it takes something like suffering as a noble truth, which isn't explained rationally or reasonably. You know, so it's not the first noble truth of dukkha, of suffering isn't about why we suffer, who's to blame for it, you know, so we we tend to, we can blame ourselves for our suffering, we can blame somebody else, we can blame God, you know, whatever, you know, the sense that we want to know, why do I suffer like this? That's rational, trying to figure it out and analytically find a cause for it or who's to blame for it. But notice the first noble truth is, is more on the gut level of awareness. It's like this. This feeling of anxiety or sense of lack. Something is imperfect. I'm, there's something I need to get. I'm, I worry about the future. Why do I suffer? Why do I have these emotions? Why do I get upset over sometimes rather insignificant things that happen? 
Why am I so easily offended? You know, we can just, somebody doesn't smile at us one morning, we can feel offended. You know, we grow up, we have hang-ups about whether we're loved or liked or appreciated, and we tend to need the support, you know, smiles from people and and accolades and praise and affirmations to feel right about ourselves. And rationally, we can be very, you know, brilliant scientists or philosophers, but on the gut level, the feeling level, we can feel hopeless or not good enough or inferior or that there's something missing or lacking in us. So many of the questions on retreats, you know, about people dealing with what we call the inner tyrant, a kind of vicious monster inside us that always is criticizing us. And so, you know, this we can all recognize that, you know, when you're you're, you're upset about something. Somebody said something that upset you and you're crying. And the inner tyrant will come and say, well, forget it, it doesn't really matter, you're just being silly. That's the rational, you know, that's the judgmental function. Don't be so silly, don't be so sensitive, you're making, you know, a scene about nothing. That's the, the inner tyrant judging you. But you're, you're emotionally very upset. It's like this. Or in, when somebody dies, somebody, you know, in, in England, for example, I used to, when, because the, in the British system, it's about don't make a scene when, you know, death is, you know, everybody has to die. Don't make a scene. Stiff upper lip. Get on with life which is all rational, you know, it's reasonable, sensible, rational. But grief, when you lose somebody you love, is like this. It's it's not rational, it's not what you choose to feel. It's not sensible or reasonable, but it is what it is. So it's, it's learning to trust this awareness that you can be aware of grief is, is this, it's like this, being upset over something that might seem trivial to everyone else. But if you're upset, it's like this. You know, it's not a matter of how you should be feeling, but this is the way it is. And grief and being upset and the emotional is the conditions that arise and cease according to other conditions. So the inner tyrant is the critic, you know, it's the critic, it's stiff upper lip, don't make a scene, don't embarrass yourself. Men don't cry and be brave, stiff upper lip, and all these kind of uh, 
rational suggestions can come from, you know, how you want things to be. But what we experience through these forms is, is, is the feeling of life, the loss of loved ones, the failure when we fail at something that we wanted to succeed in. When, you know, when we are successful, we feel like, we feel happy. And everybody's praising us, you know, he's a great success, she's a, she's a CEO of an important chemical industry and she's a success and, and then we, you know, the, we like that sense of feeling that I'm a success as a person. And then we, we end up homeless and a failure. And then we hate ourselves. The inner critic says, you're, you're obviously useless. You're just, nobody loves you. You're a failure. But in terms of Dhamma, success and failure of equal value, you know, success, sometimes we feel successful, sometimes we feel failures. But they are conditions that we, that we're not trying to analyze or judge, but recognize with intuitive awareness. It's like this. It's not telling you how you should feel or whether being a loser is, is true, but feeling like a loser, a failure is like this. Trust that awareness. That's the path of wisdom. Whether you're considered a success or failure or whatever is, is the world, you know, the society which is mainly ignorant and based on, you know, most societies have, you know, values and, and, uh, principles and standards that, that are quite high. But values and standards, principles are, you know, they're like guiding stars. But when we always come from what should be, how things should be according to our high standards and principles, then we, we, the inner tyrant can always find something, you know, weaknesses, flaws, imperfections, coward, Cowardliness, fear, resentment, and say you shouldn't have that. You know, if you were really, you know, you were really honest and perfect, you wouldn't even have such thoughts or inclinations. But the intuitive awareness is non-judgmental. Because it's about feeling, which is is not a principle or a high standard or a value. It is what it is. We can't, we can't help the way we feel. We don't always want to feel what we're feeling, but at this moment, at this very moment, each one of you is feeling something. You didn't choose it. It isn't a matter of choice or <clears throat> rationally, you know, choosing the best feeling you can have in this moment. But you know what you're feeling at this moment is like this. 
The next question is someone saying they are overwhelmed with thoughts of the past and the future. What to do? Yeah, well, that's the past and the future. Really contemplate this sense of here and now. You're here. The place is here. The time is now. You know, it's, so, you know, what is the past right now? And you're sitting here and you're thinking about this morning. That's a memory. Or you're thinking about yesterday or a week ago or ten years ago. The memories. Somebody asked me once about past lives. Have, have you experienced uh, memories from past lives? And so, you know, I haven't, I haven't noticed any memories of past lives. But I met people that have memories of past lives. And usually, like, they remember being Julius Caesar or <laughs> Genghis Khan, somebody interesting. <laughs> Not like a, a farmer in in Uzbekistan a hundred years ago. And so you can make interesting stories, you know, I've of um, if you have interesting past lives, you know, being Julius Caesar could I could tell you many interesting stories. <laughs> but being just uh Dirt farmer in Uzbekistan a hundred years ago, there's much to tell. But it's still a memory, even if, if these memories are valid. You know, there's, there's, a me- at this point, here and now, if you remember being Julius Caesar, it's still a memory that comes and goes. And it's not a self, it's a memory. If you remember this morning, what you had to eat at the noon meal, that's a memory now. So whether it's Julius Caesar or the noon meal, it's memory. You know, so you, we're not interested in the, in the content of the memory, whether it's interesting, fascinating, glamorous, important, or just memory of, of a meal we had previously. So, I encourage you to invest, like, intentional remembering. Thinking about this morning or yesterday. Or before you came, before you arrived at Puttarafari Resort. There's a memory now. Then the future, right now as you're sitting here, is what you imagine, what you expect. You have plans, you have expectations, hopes, or dreads. Maybe you dread the future, maybe you, you imagine, have, you can create imagine, images of success or failure in the future. And that's happening right now as you're sitting here. So that's a sankara, the images, the imagination, the, the fears, the dread. It's the unknown, isn't it? The future is unknown. 
its possibility. Everything could go perfectly well, or everything might fall apart. It's, it's, it's a guess, it's an imagination, an image that we create here and now. And so we, just by reflecting in this way, you're, you're seeing that like what is arising while you're thinking is about the past. Well, don't, don't try to stop thinking about the past, but examine thinking about the past, what you remember. It's like this, isn't it? It, it arises and ceases. Memories can't linger for very long. They come and go very quickly. Plans for the future right now is create images, imagination. You have hope that everything's going to be go well, or you dread the future. Hope or dread, imagination, being unsure, feeling insecure about your future is like this, and that's happening now. So, like the future is the unknown right now. You can't know the future. You can know that you're imagining something for the future. You can know that you hope for the best or dread that everything's going to fall apart in the future. But there's only the here and the now. Pachubhanatamma in Pali was the, the present reality, the Dhamma of the present, here and now. So in trying to stop the thinking mind or trying to, you know, stop proliferating and, and fighting and resisting it and trying to control it, investigate it, you know, what is, and, and apply this, you know, what is the past right now for each one of you? You know, whether it's the noon meal or 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's Julius Caesar, or you were a caveman or cavewoman, and the undertow, you know, the memories, it still arises in the present. And it's a memory, so it doesn't have any, any heart, any soul to it. It's just the empty phenomena that comes in the present. The past is a memory, the future is the unknown, now is the knowing. So this awareness, satisampachanya, awareness, mindfulness, consciousness, is here and now, it's not about the future or the past. So this is, and then the, again the Santiti Kodama is here and now, apparent here and now. That's all there ever is in, in experience, is the here and now. <laughs> 